You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning. So glad to be with you all on the first day of the year. Celebrate the start of 2023. Um, If you'll turn to Titus chapter 3 in your Bibles, Uh, if you want to use one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, it's page uh, 1058. So I'm going to pick on myself a little bit. Um, I told Ashton I wouldn't start picking on her in any sermons yet, so I'll pick on myself. When I was a kid, maybe six or seven years old, I'm not sure exactly. I remember one, uh, one day, I was going to stay with my grandparents. They were coming to pick, pick us up, me and my sisters, from my parents' house. Uh, we were gonna stay with them for a few days. So they came and picked us up, we got in the car, we were driving down the interstate, and I remember uh, my grandmother asked me something, and I smarted off to her, and I said it's, it was none of her business. Uh, that didn't go so well. And my granddad didn't say anything. He didn't need to. He just got off the next exit and got back on going another way and took me back home. And so I didn't get to go to their house. And uh, when I got home, I got hot sauce on my tongue uh, for smarting off to my grandma. So I learned a few things that day, as you can imagine. Uh, I learned, first of all, respect the authority of my grandparents, respect my grandmother, uh, to not be proud and, and disobedient. I learned to respect my, my grandfather um, in part because I could tell that he cared about my grandmother. He loved her and he wouldn't let anybody talk back to her, even his own grandson. He would just take me back home. Uh, I also learned that there was an expectation for how I was supposed to act. I was their grandchild, I was going to their house. Uh, I was supposed to act in a certain way towards them, uh, towards my grandma, I was supposed to act with respect, with kindness, to not use harsh words, and to show love. And I didn't do that, and I was punished for it. So as we look at the book of Titus, and we're starting in chapter three, but just to give you an overview of the first couple of chapters. Uh, Paul's writing this letter to Titus. Uh, Titus is acting as as a sort of apostolic delegate for Paul to Crete, uh, to the church in Crete. Paul starts out this letter to Titus explaining to him uh, what he's doing there, that he was sent to, he was left in Crete, Titus was to Uh, set right what was left undone, and to appoint elders in every town. And so Paul explains to him, here's the qualifications for what an elder should be. What kind of character are they supposed to have? What kind of person is qualified to be an elder? Uh, He also explains to him um, how to deal with false teaching in the church, to make sure you put in place elders who know what they're teaching, who know they're teaching the true gospel, and then how to react to Uh, people who are teaching something other than the true gospel. 
And now in chapter 2, he goes on to talk about more discipling in the church, how Titus is to disciple the members of the church to act, how they're supposed to act in relation to each other and to the, in the body of Christ. Now, chapter 3, Paul moves from discipleship inside the church to what is, what is the outworking of that discipleship? What is the outworking of the gospel? How are Christians supposed to live outside of the church and towards unbelievers? So as we come to chapter 3, uh, what we're going to see is that Paul instructs Titus how Christians should live among unbelievers as a result of God's grace through salvation. And then what we should know as disciples from this passage is that the gospel shapes how we as disciples live because of God's mercy and kindness motivating us to good works. Now the point of this passage in chapter 3, the first 11 verses, the point of this is to show how the gospel transforms the way we live. Once we are regenerated, we're born again, the gospel transforms how we live as disciples towards the lost, how we interact with people outside of the church, and it reminds us of the purpose for living that way. Not just what we should do, but why and how. We are called to show gentleness and kindness to outsiders, to unbelievers, not out of a weakness, um, but because of the grace we were shown by God while we were his enemies. Because of the Lord's mercy, we can show grace and love to those who do not believe. And the purpose of this is the knowledge of the truth. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what he has done, and it's for the salvation of the lost, so they will come to the Lord. So I would like us to see four ways that the gospel shapes us as disciples. And the first one, looking at the first two verses of chapter 3, the gospel forms how we live. Look at verse 1. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Uh, submit to rulers and authorities. Now, when we hear the word submission, uh, that may sound like a form of showing weakness. We're, we're submitting because we uh, are weaker and we want to uh, submit out of, out of, out of that. And, but really, submission is a, a gospel word. Submission is, a, is not a bad thing. It may sometimes have negative connotations by the way we think about it, but it's really a good thing. Submitting to rulers and authorities, we're called to do this. It's a shadow of what submitting to the Lord looks like. We know that the Lord is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over the whole world, over all of these rulers and authorities that we're talking about. And so we're submitting to them in submission to the Lord, that he is sovereign and he has placed us where we are. He's placed the authorities over us that he has. And so we are submitting because of that. And we are called to obey, to obey God, first of all, and to obey the authorities that he has placed us under. Now, there may be times where we cannot submit to a ruler, authority, a government, and submit to God at the same time. But as a general rule, we're called to submit, to obey, 
and to live, live that way in submission to the Lord's sovereignty. Um, there's lots of examples of this. Our parents, we're to submit to our parents as authorities over us. We're to submit to our governments who are in authority over us. Our church family and our pastors, we're sub to submit to them as we are submitting to the Lord and as we're seeking to follow Christ in that. To be ready for every good work. Uh, disciples should be ready to jump into action to serve and do good works to display the gospel to the lost. This isn't just a, a passive thing. We're not supposed to sit back and wait for good works to show up. We're supposed to be active in seeking how we can do good to our neighbors, to our communities, to our friends and family. How can we do good things to show the gospel to them? Uh, and as you're thinking, maybe you're thinking about New Year's resolutions. Uh, if you if you are, I would challenge you to think about how you can serve at, at Covenant Hope, serve your church family. Um, try and think of a way you can serve in at least one area of Covenant Hope if you're not already. Um, be ready for good works as disciples. We're told to slander no one. Uh, in his commentary on Titus, uh, Matthew Henry writes, if no good can be spoken, rather than speak evil unnecessarily, say nothing. Uh, I like to think about, I've, I've thought about this since I was a kid, I always remembered, uh, if you've seen the movie Bambi, you know the character Thumper, the rabbit, his friend, and you may know where I'm going, he says, uh, if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. How often do we find ourselves whether that's on, on social media, somewhere on the internet, in conversations with friends or family, how often do we find ourselves speaking evil of someone that we don't even know, we've never met them personally, we're saying something about them, about their character, and we're not thinking about, are we choosing our words for the sake of the gospel or for some other reason? To make ourselves feel better, to uh, puff ourselves up, or to try and tear someone down? How are you choosing your words? We're called to not slander anyone. Slandering someone isn't justified because of their sinfulness. Someone is doing evil. It's not justified to slander that person because of that. Don't forget, we too, as disciples now, we were once in the same place that they were. We were once enemies of God, just as sinful and evil. So don't justify speaking evil to someone because of their sinfulness. Uh, next, avoid fighting. Be kind. Always showing gentleness to all people. We're called to act differently, to respond differently because of who we are in Christ. Uh, avoid fighting. Uh, this doesn't say don't pick fights with someone. It says avoid fighting. So there may be times where someone's picking a fight with you, and I don't mean necessarily uh, a physical fight, whether that's a legal fight or something like that. There, there may be times where we're in the right, but we don't have to uh, give in to that fight. We can avoid it. Now, I'm not advocating to avoid self-defense in life-threatening situations. I'm not saying that. But we're called to not react with anger when someone's uh, hateful towards you, when someone's 
rude towards you when someone is doing something um, to offend you. We're not called to react in vengeance and anger. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, not us. We were called to respond in kindness and gentleness. Be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. We should act in a, in a kind of way as disciples of Jesus that makes the world say, that doesn't make sense. Why would they respond? I was horrible to that person, and they responded in kindness. Why would they do such a thing? That's how we're supposed to respond. Challenge their beliefs that they think that you're just like them, that you have no reason to act any differently. Make them think otherwise because we have a reason to act differently. Uh, from Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan, we can understand that we are to love our neighbors. If you've been with us in a quip class, we talked about this in our neighboring class. Uh, what Jesus is saying there is that actually everyone is your neighbor, not just your church family, not just your actual physical neighbors. Everyone is your neighbor, including your enemies. We are to show love to them. Paul is echoing this. He's saying, always show gentleness to all people, not just some, not just believers, not just people who are kind to you. Show gentleness and kindness to all people. So this brings us to how the gospel challenges our past, who we once were. So in contrast to how Paul is writing that we should live, this is how we lived before Christ, before we were regenerated. Verse 3 says, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Before Christ, we lacked wisdom to live in any way but for ourselves. We disobeyed and we lived selfishly. We were foolish and disobedient. We disobeyed uh, lawful authorities. We disobeyed our parents. We didn't have the wisdom to understand how we were supposed to live. This is how we were before Christ saved us. We were deceived and enslaved by various passions and pleasures. Before Christ, we were enslaved to sin. We were deceived by it and by the depravity of our own hearts. We lived for whatever seemed right to us at the time, what sounded good, what, what felt good. Even if the consequences were terrible, we really weren't concerned with that because we had no reason to think otherwise. We were focusing on what sounds good to me right now. Passion and pleasure ruled our hearts and led us away from God. We were living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Unlike what Paul says we are called to be, kind and gentle, before Christ, our hearts were saturated with hate, with envy. Maybe we were envious of people because of what they had or what they looked like or their material possessions. We were envious because we, we hated them because we wanted to be them. We wanted to be in that place. We wanted to be something that we're not. We were uh, desiring things that weren't even beneficial for us eternally. But we didn't realize that because our heart was so ruled by sin, by hate, that we detested one another. 
Apart from Christ, our hearts are driven by greed and hatred for others. This is how we once were, sinful and with no way out. The Apostle Paul writes, explaining how we should live as disciples, and then he reminds us of how we live before Christ. Now he goes on to explain in the next part of chapter 3, what changed What happened to make us different? How are we able to live rightly? And that's the gospel. The gospel results from God's mercy. Good verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. God saved us because of his love, his kindness. How we are called to act in kindness and love, God showed us that first. He saved us because of this, and it wasn't because we earned it, because we weren't able to earn it. No works that we do are good enough to meet God's standard of perfection. We can't measure up. Our works are not able to restore the broken relationship that we have with God apart from Christ. But according to his mercy, our salvation is because God is merciful, and that means we don't deserve it. We're shown mercy even though we haven't done anything to deserve mercy. This is what grace is. And something we may sometimes forget is that he didn't have to show us mercy. He wasn't obligated to be graceful towards us. There was no good reason other than what we see here, his love, his mercy. If we're honest with ourselves, do we sometimes feel like we deserve God's mercy? Maybe not even consciously. Maybe you just think about it in the back of your mind. It it kind of influences how you think. Sometimes we think, or maybe we think of ourselves in the way the Pharisee in Luke 18 as he's praying, saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not sinful like these other people. Thank you, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. I'm not as sinful as they are. I don't cheat on my taxes. I I say a few lies every once in a while, but they're not that bad. We sometimes feel we deserve God's mercy or we're worthy of salvation. This is the furthest thing from the truth. We are absolutely unworthy of salvation in any way apart from Christ. God is not merciful because he has to be, because he owes us that, but because he is more loving than we can possibly imagine. The love we are called to show is just a fraction of the love that God showed us because it's so beyond our comprehension. Now it says, He saved us not by works of righteousness we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. These words regeneration and renewal highlight uh, with regeneration that we are changed Whenever we're saved by Christ, we're changed. Our hearts are transformed, are are transplanted. We are made new creatures. 
through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are now freed from our slavery to sin and our former lives and how we once lived. Remember verse 3, we were once this way, but now we are free from having to live that way. Not to say that we don't sin, because we do, even after we're regenerated. But we are not enslaved to sin in the way we once were. God changes our hearts and enables us to live rightly through Christ and by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And he changes not just our behavior, but our, our, our hearts on the inside. It's a heart transplant, not just a behavior modification. This is how we're able to really love people. Renewal. The Holy Spirit is given to sanctify us. He's continually shaping us, transforming us to look more like Christ throughout the rest of our lives as believers. And it says that he poured out his Spirit through Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit when we accept Christ, when we put our faith in him and believe and repent of our sins. We receive the Holy Spirit, and it says abundantly. This highlights God's generosity. He's, he's saving us, but he's saving us in such a way that it's, it's abundant blessing, more than we can imagine now. And we'll understand that one day, but now it may be hard to comprehend just how abundant his blessings are. So we are regenerated, we are renewed, why does he do this? Why does he save us and give us his spirit? He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This is the purpose of salvation and sanctification, that we would become heirs, that we would inherit the blessings of God, that we would inherit eternal life. And notice it says, again, justified by his grace. We are considered righteous not by our works, but by the grace of God through the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's the only way we are considered righteous, because of what Christ has done. We are heirs with the hope of eternal life. Through our union with Christ, we inherit eternal life, and we have assurance of that. We don't just have a wish. We, we, I hope this happens. I hope we have eternal life. No, we have a full assurance that it will happen. God has promised it, and we know that he fulfills his promises. He is faithful to do so, and he will do so. We know that we will have eternal rest with the Lord. Again, this is only by his grace, by his mercy, not because of anything we've done. And this gives us a hope, the hope of eternal life. No one else outside of Christ has this same hope. We can live differently because we have this, knowing we have a future home with the Lord. We have eternal rest. We have eternal salvation through Christ. This whole passage shows us our motivation. I'm um, talking about verses 4 through 7. It shows us our motivation for how Paul is calling us to live in uh, verses 1 through 2. 
Our motivation is the gospel. We're motivated by the grace of God to live the way he has called us to. How can we live this way? Well, we just heard the Holy Spirit enables us to live this way, sanctifying us, making us new creatures. We are able to live as Christ because of the regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. On our own, without God, we would be like verse 3 says. We would be envious. We would, we would have malice, detest one another. We would disobey. We would not be like the first two verses. We would not be kind. We would not obey. We would not submit. On our own, we would be sinful. And we are only able to live rightly because of the Holy Spirit, because of his sanctifying work. And why should we live this way? Again, the point is not modifying our behavior. It's not act this way for no good reason. Why? We're motivated by God's mercy and grace to love the lost. On our own, we wouldn't do this. Because of the love that God has shown us, we can show love to all people. We can be kind to all people. Motivated by God's mercy towards us, we no longer have to think in terms of who deserves my obedience? Who deserves my kindness? We don't think about that in the same way. That's how the world thinks. I'll be kind to you if you're kind to me. Otherwise, I'll have nothing to do with you or treat you with contempt, with resentment and vengeance. But remember that we didn't deserve God's mercy. He had every right to be wrathful towards us because of our sin, but he chose not to. He chose to show us mercy. We were his enemies, and he was graceful anyway. That's our motivation. The gospel is our motivation to live rightly, to live differently, because of what we have been changed into, what God has done for us. Now we want to see not just how we should live uh, and how we once lived, but let's look at the last few verses. And Paul's going to talk about now how the gospel shapes discipleship in the church and what that looks like. So the gospel shapes discipleship. He says this thing is trustworthy. And he's talking about here this explanation of the gospel that he's giving. The gospel is trustworthy. It's worthy of full acceptance and the gospel is not something that we need to hear once and forget about it. Or hear once and think, I'm good, I know everything I need to. We need the gospel every day. The lost need the gospel to come to Christ, and we need it to be sanctified. And because this is trustworthy, because the gospel is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance... Paul instructs Titus then to insist on these things, insist on the gospel, insist on a different way of living because of what God has done. As a church then, as a local church, as a, a covenanted body of believers, we must insist on the gospel. We must insist on these things, on how to live rightly because of the gospel. So that, we see another so that. 
so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, these good works are good and profitable for everyone. They're good for the lost. The good works that we do are from the gospel, are motivated by the gospel. We are sharing the gospel with the lost. These good works are profitable for those who don't know God, who are far from him, because we need to be bringing the gospel to them. But they're good for us, too. Doing good works uh, are good because we are in constant need of sanctification. We need the gospel always. And these are not good works that save. He's not saying you need to do good works so that you can gain the mercy of God. God's mercy is not our reward. It's the motivation for why we do good things. Good works are the natural outworking of the gospel. And we saw this when we studied uh, James, the book of James. Uh, works are not to save us. They're what we do because we are saved, because God has shown us mercy and changed how we act because of our, our new hearts that he's given us. Uh, some examples of this. Works that are good for the lost. Serving your community. Serving your neighborhood. Building friendships and relationships with the people that you, that you know, that you in, encounter every day. Doing good works for them. Helping them, uh, you know, helping them move. It could be something simple, but we are to be ready for these kinds of good works, motivated by the work of the gospel. Good works can also be uh, beneficial, profitable for the church, for our church family, um, serving one another in the same way. And you guys do this very well. Um, I know we have been uh, served by you and uh, many of you are serving each other, doing good works to equip and edify each other, build each other up and encourage each other, helping each other move. Um, there's all kinds of things that y'all are doing. Doing meal trains when someone's sick. These are good things that build up the body of Christ. Again, our motivation is not because we're obligated to do these things. We're, we're not forced to do them, but we're doing them as the natural outworking of our transformed hearts. So what does this mean for church discipline? Take a look back at the text. Verse 9. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. And reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. Paul's saying, instead of the good works that are profitable, that are worthwhile for everyone, for the lost, for the church, these things that he's talking about are unprofitable and worthless. Now, we may not know all of the specific issues Paul's referring to. Uh, this is some specific issues about the church in Crete. Uh, but we can see that there were false teaching, there were disputes going on that were a source of division in the church. So I want to distinguish between two uh, different types of these worthless things. Uh, false teaching. Look back at Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. 
who Paul writes that, for there are, are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. These things are dividing the church in Crete. They are distracting from the gospel work. And it was a sign to Paul that some of these people who were teaching these things uh, were not in Christ. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. So we need to be sure that we know the gospel, the true gospel, well. We know it in our hearts, and we can be able to discern what is not true and guard against that. So I want to distinguish them between false teaching. These are things that are not the gospel. They're contrary to the gospel. They contradict it. They're additions to it or subtractions, taking away from the power of the gospel to save. But there are also things that I would call gospel distractions. It may not fall into the category of false teaching, uh, may fall short of that, but they still distract from the good works that Paul is talking about us doing. They're, they're distractions and cause disunity in the church. And we want to avoid these as well. Uh, one, is, one example is talking about uh, doctrine. Uh, we should talk about doctrine. We should know our theology. We should know what the scriptures say. But we should be careful to uh, not cause unnecessary division over doctrines that are less clear or that uh, we may not fully understand until Christ returns. God has made clear in the word what is essential to Christianity, what we need to be saved, and the doctrines that are essential for us to hold. Uh, there are some, that, some theological issues that we'll, we'll never come to a full understanding of. We're not meant to, and that's okay. God gives us enough information that we can know what we need to, and there's room for a Christian freedom in interpreting other issues. We are also blessed with a, the local church and with the universal church to help discern these types of things, to help discern the things that are less clear. So we can do that together and not trying to come to a definitive answer on everything that is less clear in the scripture. Hold to the essentials of the faith strongly. Leave some room for Christian freedom so that we can guard against things that are actually contrary to the gospel. Don't be distracted by things that are non-essential and miss something truly false that comes into the church. Another example may be our political beliefs. Now, um, many of us probably know if you've turned on the news or been on the internet at all, recently, in the last couple of decades probably, 
Our culture is very hyper-political. Everything is politicized down to the smallest detail. And if we're not careful, this may influence how we live out the gospel, how we live as a church more than the gospel does. Now, let me say this does, I'm not saying that the gospel shouldn't influence how we vote and how we interact on the, um, in political culture and things like that. It definitely should. Our beliefs should be influenced by what the scripture says. That's our ultimate authority. But we should be careful not to let politics divide our church. We are committed to the gospel. Our mission is to bring the gospel to the lost, to be unified in that mission, in the gospel mission, and in the word of God, not based on our political affiliations. We just have to guard against these things like that that may distract from the gospel. Even if we're trying to do what's good, if we're not careful, that can influence us more than the gospel does. We should also be careful when we're talking about these things and how we display this to the outside world. If we're showing our, our politics more than the gospel, the world's going to see that and see that we're not really committed to the gospel, we're committed to certain political ideas. Our mission is to bring the gospel to the lost. We have to act in a certain way that this shows what our mission is, why we love the way we do. We can't display the gospel through bitterness and anger and resentment. And so Paul says, reject a divisive person. Now this is uh, similar to Matthew 18. When we talk about church discipline, Paul is saying, give them multiple warnings. Call them to repentance. The purpose here is not reject a divisive person because we want to condemn them and declare them uh, judged, declare them condemned, and cast them out because we don't like them or because we hate them. It's not about that. The purpose is to correct, to correct with love, with gentleness, yes, with truth, being firm on the truth. What is the truth of the gospel? And here's why you're not following that. But ultimately, if the person is unrepentant, then we are to reject them. Paul says he's self-condemned. If he's been called to repentance, called to know the truth, and continues to reject it, then he's chosen his own condemnation because of that. Again, keep in mind our motivation for this. Our motivation for church discipline is, again, the gospel. We are making mature disciples of Christ. That's our goal. That's our motivation for doing discipline. Discipline is part of the local church. We have to guard the gospel. We have to guard what's true, reject what's false, and reject those that divide the body of Christ and don't repent of it and don't come back to the truth. Reject gospel distractions that take away from the work of the gospel and the mission of the church and the good works that we are called to devote ourselves to. So let me go back then to our motivation for how to live. Paul illustrates in the middle section of chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, the gospel. This is the motivation 
for how we live. This is the motivation for how we live in the first two verses, or how we interact with the lost, with people outside the church. And this is our motivation for how we do church discipline, how we disciple inside the church. Everything is motivated by the gospel, by the mercy of God, because he has shown us grace when we didn't deserve it, and we were worthy of being condemned for our sin, for our rejection of God. But he has been graceful. He has been merciful to us. So how should we respond then to this? Three things. Know the gospel and guard it. As we said, know the true gospel so you can discern what's false. Avoid false teaching, distractions, and things that bring disunity to the body of Christ. But guard it with love and with grace, knowing that we have been shown grace. Don't be hateful, resentful towards those who don't know the truth, but gently and kindly display that to them. Speak the truth to them of the gospel from the scripture. Know the gospel and guard it. Then proclaim the gospel to the lost, both in words and in deeds. We are to display gentleness and love. We are to submit to authorities. We are to obey. We are to be kind and loving in a way that makes no sense to the outside world because we have been shown such amazing grace and mercy by God who, again, was justified in displaying his wrath towards us, but he chose not to. Act in a way that shows how the gospel has transformed us, has given us new hearts. Act in a way that shows how different we are and then speak the gospel to them. Someone asks you, why were you kind to me when I was rude to you for so long? That's a great opportunity. Explain to them the gospel. That God was kind to me when I was a sinner. When I was hateful and, and uh, bitter and, and angry. When I was rebellious towards him, he was kind and showed me grace. And brought me to the knowledge of the truth of Christ again remember the mercy of God this is our motivation for living as Christ living the way we are called to as believers we have, this is our motivation for being gentle this is our motivation for submitting this is our motivation for good works it's all for because of the mercy of God because we have been shown grace and because we want to share that grace with others. We want to share the gospel with others. That's why we live this way. Even though it may be difficult at times, it may be really difficult to submit to uh, whatever authority. It may be difficult to submit to your parents sometimes. It may be frustrating. You may not understand. But God calls us to do that because of his mercy and because of the gospel. Because we want to display that in everything that we do display the natural outworking of what Christ has done to change us. So, our motivation for how to live, where do we get this? It's at the cross. It's at the cross that God displayed his mercy and his love toward us in the death and resurrection of Jesus, who bore the wrath of God in our place. Now he's calling us to live with just a fraction of the grace that he displayed at the cross. He's saying, be kind, be gentle. This is nothing in comparison to what he did. 
the king of the universe, who was merciful towards us, sinners who offended and sinned against the king of the universe, the most, most powerful being, the only eternal being. We sinned against him and he showed us mercy. We couldn't deserve it any less. So our motivation is the cross where Jesus died in our place. He bore the wrath of God that we didn't have to. It's our motivation then, the cross is our motivation to bring the good news to the lost. The good news that Christ was raised from the grave. He defeated death and sin. He reconciled us to God, giving us the hope of eternal life with him. Go then and proclaim that to the lost. Proclaim that to people who are far from God and call them to repentance and faith in Christ because of God's mercy and what he has done for you. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good, you are gracious and loving and kind in a way that we can't even understand. We thank you that you showed us mercy. Thank you that while we were your enemies, while we sinned against you and rebelled against you, that you provided a way for us to be reconciled to you through Christ. Thank you for your love and mercy and kindness towards us. God, would we be transformed by that, be continually sanctified by the, your Holy Spirit, made to live as Christ and to show your mercy and grace to those who don't know it yet. And God, we pray then that as we do this, as we seek to proclaim the gospel, Lord, that in our communities, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods, God, that you would save people, you would save the lost, you would use us to fulfill the Great Commission, to proclaim the good news, and that you would save lost souls. God, we thank you for who you are, for your love and mercy. We pray all this in Jesus' name.